Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I have been confused by and I'm trying to understand just what's going on with the attacks on transgender people and the trans community. My work in analysis has obviously conveyed my understanding that we are still engaged in an existential battle in America over whether this will be a white country or a multiracial democracy. That reality has fueled much of the politics in this country for centuries. Those same neo-Confederate forces also routinely target and attack other sectors of the population. Women seeking reproductive freedom, immigrants from non-white countries, poor people in general, and members of the LGBTQ plus community, among others. But this demonization of transgender people in recent years seems especially targeted and calculated. And I frankly have had a hard time understanding where this is coming from, why it seems to be escalating now, and what is the calculus behind these attacks. So that is the topic we will dive into on today's podcast. And I'm delighted to have an expert journalist who has done extensive research and writing on the topic join us to help us understand these issues. For that conversation, I am unfortunately not joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang, who is out sick today. Rest up, Charlene. We are blessed to have a talented and multidimensional team at Democracy in Color, where everyone has each other's back. And so for the second podcast in a row, I'm joined by our staff writer, Fola Onifade. Hi, Fola. How are you? Did you make the most of the long weekend? And do you want to introduce our guest? Hi, Steve. Yes, I did. I got in some much needed rest this weekend. And I also did one of my new favorite hobbies, which is antiquing. What? You're too young, You're too young to do antiquing. <laughs> it's so fun. Um, I found this, and I think you'll really appreciate this. I found a huge art history book called Souls Grown Deep, African-American Vernacular Art. Mm. And it documents the history of like Southern grassroots art just sometimes called folk art. And it's like over 500 pages and has wow. over 800 illustrations. It's really cool. Um, wow. But yes, so this episode is going to come out on the first day of June, which is Pride Month. And there is a bit of cognitive dissonance there, given all the attacks we've seen against the LGBTQ plus community. But we're still excited to celebrate all the accomplishments and progress that the community has made. And so we're joined today by Orion Rumler for that conversation. Orion is the LGBTQ plus reporter for the 19th News. He covers state politics, breaking news, and the underreported ways that trans and queer people are marginalized. Orion previously covered breaking news at Axios and contributed research to Axios on HBO. He's written over 100 reported pieces on LGBTQ plus issues for the 19th News alone, I counted. His work has been republished by PBS NewsHour, Teen Vogue, Miss Magazine, and the Philadelphia Inquirer, among other outlets. He's also shared his work on NPR's All Things Considered, the Axios Today podcast, and The Takeaway. His reporting has been twice nominated for GLAD's Outstanding Online Journalism Award. Welcome, Orion. Thank you so much, Fola. Thank you, Steve. It's uh, really great to be here. Appreciate you being with us. Yes. So let's just dive right in um, to give listeners an overview of the LGBTQ plus attacks that we've seen around the country. Earlier this year in February, the Movement Advancement Project came out with a really well-researched in-depth reporting series called Under Fire, the War on LGBTQ plus People in America. The report found that, quote, Opponents of LGBTQ equality have become more coordinated, more emboldened, and far more willing to use creative and cruel levers of power 
to harm LGBTQ people and those who care about them, end quote. At the time, you had wrote um, about the report in a piece for the 19th. And I just wanted to share some stats for that report before we get into it. The report said that in 2021, there was a record number of anti-LGBTQ bills introduced and the number of states introducing them. But then 2022 broke that record. In 2022, 315 anti-LGBTQ bills were introduced in state legislatures across the country. And that's the most bills introduced in the last 10 years. Of those bills, 29 were signed into law. Also in 2019, not a single state had a law banning transgender youth from participating on sports teams with their peers. But as of February, 2023, there are a total of 18 states that have passed laws banning transgender youth from playing sports consistent with their gender identity. So to set up the conversation for our listeners and as a reporter covering these bills, can you help us understand the scope of these attacks? Absolutely. Thank you, Fola. So yeah, that's what Movement Advancement Project found that, and I mean, this is what we've been seeing all year, that this is a historically challenging and frightening year for queer people. And that's because of the volume and speed of these bills, uh, particularly gender-affirming care bans for youth, some of which those would also affect adults. The fact that gender-affirming care bans are actually being signed into law at a pace that we haven't seen before, to me is one of the most prominent signs of how different this year is. And the ACLU is tracking 491 anti-LGBTQ bills that are introduced this year. And that count's gonna be different based on what organization you're getting it from. HRC counts over 520 uh, anti-LGBTQ bills brought this year. And the HRC count of anti-LGBTQ laws enacted is 70. But we also have to remember that, you know, lawsuits are usually come out against these laws pretty quickly. And there's other examples this year, like in Missouri, of a policy uh, being withdrawn. And the Missouri case was from the attorney general. But so overall, this is a historically frightening year. And just to also touch on kind of a broader overview, in the, in the past three years alone, we've seen the first legislative ban on trans youth playing sports the first legislative ban on gender-affirming care for trans youth, that was in Arkansas, and the first state ban on the use of X as a gender marker in identity documents in Oklahoma, and then the first don't say gay law passed in Florida. So the past three years also has been a lot. Well, that's what I wanted to jump into and try to understand better. Because there's all these different things that have happened in the past three years in particular. You mentioned you know, several of them. Um, and that, you know, from the from outside the community, it certainly seems like it's come out of, you know, nowhere, but obviously it's the appearance of it is so coordinated and focused that it must come from somewhere. So what do we know about why the Republicans in states like Florida and elsewhere are as ferocious as they are right now? What is where is this coming from? Do we have any, you know, analysis or, or reporting around the genesis of these attacks? Yes, actually. So there's been reporting kind of tracing where a lot of these bills come from uh, for a while. And and some of those early examples go back to 2017 when we were seeing bathroom bills. And that was the big topic of conversation. And that's where we see groups like Alliance Defending Freedom, which the Southern Poverty Law Center has designated as a hate group. And ADF disputes that. But that's what Southern Poverty Law Center says. This is one of the groups that we've seen get involved in the present day with lawsuits around gender affirming care. 
And then when we go back to bathroom bills, this is a group that we saw with bathroom bills providing model language for legislation. So, and then we also see other groups like in the midterms, this past midterm cycle, we saw a lot of rhetoric in campaign ads, uh, Republican campaign ads and the American Principles Project Super PAC. Uh, we found that was a group that was, you know, creating funding a lot of these ads. And the president of that group, Terry Schilling, has done a lot of interviews, including with The Times. He has had some open discussions about why that Super PAC cares about this issue. And to paraphrase, um, some of what he's shared has been that, you know, although a lot of their rhetoric in these in those campaign ads and others focuses on trans youth, what he's shared in his interviews is that the group also wants gender-forming care for trans adults to be restricted. Huh. So then we can also look to that group where they're, you know, when he's having these candid interviews to say like that's one of their long-term goals. So I know that was a long image answer, um, but that those, that's some of what we see behind the scenes. Do you know if any of those groups have been involved? Uh, how new are they, the groups who are pushing these different entities, like those different entities that have been doing the modelization? Is that, have they previously existed and are turning their focus to these bills, or are these new entities that are coming onto the scene? Oh, right. So ADF is not a new organization, and they don't only focus on LGBTQ issues. It's a conservative Christian legal advocacy group. And they've also focused in other areas as they describe it. Religious freedom is, is one of their key areas and also reproductive access. And that group, I believe, was founded in 1993. So yeah, these are not groups that are focused only on LGBTQ areas. But what we've seen in the past few years is they are trying to focus more on transgender issues. And the way that we see that package normally, and that's not just limited to ADF, but when we see this packaged in these conservative, especially conservative Christian circles, is a focus on family. And they usually phrase it in a way about like parental rights and family rights. And that's often how it's presented to voters and saying like, we care about family, we care about traditional family values, which we've heard before in terms of arguments about same-sex marriage. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And it kind of goes into my next question is this idea about, you know, the traditional, quote unquote, traditional family. Many of these bills have been aimed at transgender youth who are school age, um, and most of the attacks have targeted school environments and school policies. So it sounds like what you're saying is they're attacking children, but the greater argument is that it's the, the quote unquote, the traditional family, like you said. Right. And I appreciate you mentioning focus on schools, because so far this year, HRC is tracking that there are four laws that have been enacted this year that censor school curriculums and including books. And that's something else we've seen more of this year is the focus on book bans, which is not just limited to LGBTQ subjects. And to me, that's one of the areas where we see a lot of intersection on book bans on uh, racial justice and books that address that as well as books that address gender. So just following up on that, do these book ban laws or policies are being passed do they, they pass one policy that bans all the books of all of our groups, or are they going group by group in terms of the bans? What have you seen on that front? Right. So it's been chaotic uh, in, in school libraries, and the focus is usually in school library shelves. And the way it's been happening most often, which is on Florida, is that it'll be 
like a list of books that a school library will be presented with that they have to take in Florida, especially we saw that they would have to take off the shelves. And in Duval County, Florida, we saw roughly 1.6 million books in classrooms and school libraries were being reviewed in order to follow state laws like the, you know, the Don't Say Gay Law and what the state calls the Stop Woke Act. So this is a Florida specific example, but Florida has also been on the forefront of a lot of this, including uh, school discussions and book bans. So it's a list of books and it's, it can be chaotic for libraries to have to go through this. And because we also had, well, I also spoke with um, the American Library Association Mm -hmm. um, and part of that conversation was like these book challenges circumvent how library books are usually challenged because in traditionally when a book is challenged in a library, it stays on the shelf as it goes through a reconsideration process. But in the environment right now, sometimes a book is being removed before any decision is made, especially because there is a very large volume of pressure to ban books. What do we know about the, um, popular, I mean, it's such a stupid word to use, but like, is there polling in terms of how these policies, well, we obviously attacks, but they call them policies, I guess, how they're being viewed by the public and by different sectors of the public, et cetera. Yes. So Pew Research has been doing pretty good polling on this, although it's not their only focus, but um, at least annually, they'll poll on trans issues and PRI, the Public Religion Research Institute. They also do, they're one of my favorite LGBTQ polling sites. Hmm. And I did intern for them a while ago, but I was doing comps for them. I wasn't doing their polling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are two sites I like to go to for polling on this. And Washington Post KFF just came out with a survey on this. I haven't read it yet, but that one is the newest one I've seen from March. But the trends we see overall from polling is that most Americans support trans rights broadly. When they're asked a question like, do you support trans rights? What we see over and over again is like, they will say, yes, I support trans rights. Most of them will. Mm -hmm. And when it gets complicated, and this is what PRI has dived more into, it can get complicated when Americans are asked specific policy questions like, do you support bathroom access for all trans people? And the, the question will be phrased differently. And do you support sports access? And so Americans get less on the same page, especially for bathroom questions. But overall, we see that most Americans want more support for trans people. And it's the, kind of thinking with the, with the politics of it to a certain extent, can you well, both remind us of the trajectory around the bathroom bills in terms of that uh, from a few years ago? And then have there been similar things that have been more? Because sometimes I'm talking about is like an, a governmental body will make a policy, but that's different than trying to like do a ballot measure or something like that. Right. So I know there were some efforts around that in places like, you know, Houston, Harris County or on the bathroom. And then North Carolina had a whole thing. Right. So can you kind of refresh us around? It felt like from the outside that there was this flurry around the bathroom bills, but then that kind of, I don't know if died down is the right word, but it seems like that didn't get the same traction. And I feel like this has come back out again. So can you kind of refresh us what happened around the bathroom bill issues? And then has any of these uh, measures been put to the voters? Right. So bathroom bans were coming out around 2015, 2017. Uh, Most of them failed. But I will say we have seen a few bathroom bills be introduced this year, which is another reason why this year is so different, because we just weren't seeing them 
as much. Like in the past few years, it just wasn't popular. It's not a great word for it. But most of these bills that we've seen in the past three years have been about sports and now more about gender-affirming care. Um, we have seen a few more recently bills that are bathroom bills. But something that's been different about this year is in Florida, again, that state brought a bathroom bill that would affect schools, prisons, domestic violence shelters, public facilities, and healthcare facilities. And so that's a bathroom bill brought by Florida this year. That So that's a very expanded kind of bathroom bill. And what we were seeing uh, in the past in 2015, 2017, those were school bathroom bills. Those were focused on, uh, we don't want to let uh, transgender students go into the bathroom that matches their gender identity in schools. They were more limited. Now we're seeing a few come back that are way more expanded into public life. And what's your, I'm going to pivot in a second to the progressives and Democrats, but in terms of the still where this is coming from, what's your, and maybe it's a mixture of all of it, but what's your take in terms of how much of the driving force behind this are, I mean, you said some of these religious groups that are people who genuinely believe that this is wrong against their beliefs, whatever. And how much of this is like opportunistic and cynical politicians trying to find a wedge issue for their own advantage, regardless of the underlying merits? Mm, I appreciate this question because something that I feel like I still haven't seen is what kind of payoff Republican candidates actually get from this. Mm -hmm. To me, we haven't actually seen proof that this benefits Republicans running for office. And my colleague Kate Sazen did a piece on this about the midterms. Like I did a piece tracking, there was so much more anti-trans rhetoric in the last midterms, more than we'd ever seen. And then Kate did a story finding that that wasn't very successful for most Republican candidates. So, I mean, you know, we can assume that some of these candidates that were putting out a lot of anti-trans rhetoric in their race assumed it would be beneficial for them. And that's something I'm I'm curious to see in 2024 because, you know, more like we're seeing some of the major Republican candidates right now, like Nikki Haley, you know, spread more anti-trans rhetoric on the campaign trail, even in areas where they probably wouldn't expect to get a big positive response about that. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing them spread this rhetoric. I don't know whether it will actually benefit them. So that, you know, that's what I'm able to observe, but I'm not sure where it comes from. Because the question of what someone genuinely believes, to me, it, it's Im- like it's important to think about that and to talk about it. But I feel like what I have to focus on in the day-to-day coverage is what the effect is with right. people, and I like that's something I can measure and something I can report on. And of course, I can you know talk to people, but like for when I say people, I mean proponents. Like I can talk to proponents about this, but at least in my experience, like when I talk to a proponent about a bill like this, they will choose to come across in the interview as if they fully believe it. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're presenting to me in that interview. So although like the question is interesting, I don't know how to answer it through reporting unless there's like a clear example of if someone says something and does something else. Right, right. I think it is an interesting question. I think what worries me is the long-term effects and in how we win the civil war and just in general, you talk about like long-term plans and 10 years, oftentimes windows. And I worry about like what these bills will mean for transgender youth today who will be, you know, 
potentially adults or getting into adulthood 10 years from now. And I think it might go into our, you know, when we talk about the response, but how do we prevent a world in which transgender people are removed from society 10 years from now, as opposed to right now where Republicans may not be seeing the results they want to see based on the rhetoric. Part of it was that I think you, that in terms of what's the impact, what is the impact of what we're seeing? You had mentioned that, Brian, in your answer, Brian, so what, is, what are the impacts in terms of how people are receiving it? I don't know mm. if you want to share any more about that, about what you're seeing, the ramifications of this being, particularly among young people. I would definitely, thank you so, thanks so much. I, I do appreciate your thoughts, follow what you just shared. And yeah, so the, the mental health, the negative mental health effects of these bills has been uh, well documented, especially by the Trevor Project. They come out with a poll about this at least annually, and then like they'll do more branch out uh, survey releases about that throughout the year. And they found consistently that LGBTQ youth say these state proposals are really hurting their mental health, leaving them angry and sad and stressed. And then one of the added concerns is that there's a group called GLSEN, which is it's an education advocacy org focused on LGBTQ youth. Something they talk about a lot is that a lot of queer youth do not have any safe space at home. So school becomes their safest, safest space. And that's why they're so worried about curriculum bans and any bills that impact schools, which is what we've been seeing in some states that propose legislation saying that if a trans student uses different pronouns, you have to tell their parents. That is causing a lot of alarm for advocates because a lot of these kids will not be out to their parents and cannot be out to their parents if they want to be safe. So in my mind, that's something that really bothers me is when I think of a kid who probably can't be out and how that would affect them. I will add that in some states, like I spoke with a teacher in Alabama, I think last year, but the conversation with her is like, I'm talking about these bills and how concerning they are, but there's also the other side of teachers can choose not to enforce them if they're able to get away with it. And I was the person I was talking with in Alabama was like, I'm not going to enforce this because who's going to be checking up on me. So that's kind of a reality check on that. Like this is bad, but the way that enforcement actually works for some of these bills, especially school bills is not always clear. Um, I want to dig a little bit more into the politics and the movement side of it and the, and the leadership and how our assessment of that is, right? So like in the, one of my frustrations in the progressive movement and the, in terms of racial justice issues is that there's too much timidity around standing up to white supremacism and racism because there's this you know, obsession with alienating supposedly swing white voters. And but interestingly, Biden, who has you know, not historically been a crusader for civil rights, I mean, he originally came of age politically as a champion of like, you know, well, certainly the working class, the unspoken part being the white working class. Um, but interestingly, historically, he did get out ahead of President Obama when he when Biden was vice president and supporting marriage equality in, in 2012. And that the after the State of the Union address in February, human rights campaign described the administration as, quote, having an unparalleled record on advancing LGBTQ plus equality from executive actions to signing federal legislation into law. Um, and then over in Congress, on March 31st, Representative Jayapal and Ed Markey introduced the Transgender Bill of Rights. So that seems to be some motion in those areas. But I'm wondering if you could share your reflections on what you see from Democrats and progressives in terms of how forceful they are in standing up to these attacks and also 
how does the community feel about how the administration um, is leading on these issues? Thank you so much, Steve. And I appreciate bringing those examples. But I mean, where we're seeing the most resistance and pushback to these bills is from local advocates and from locally elected Democrats. It's the Democrats in state houses that have been on the front lines responding to this. And some of the examples are the Nebraska State Senator Kavanaugh, her filibuster in opposition to anti-trans bills. And then, you know, state rep Zoe Zephyr, who's trans in Montana, and Maury Turner in Oklahoma, who's non-binary. National Democrats are just not engaged at this on the same level as state house Democrats have been. There has been some of that movement in Congress that you mentioned, and Democratic Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren, they've pushed for testosterone to be deregulated. And that would, you know, that would help trans people. The Mm -hmm. DOJ and HHS, they have not responded at all to their letters on that from what Senator Markey's team has told me. And the Biden administration, the one action this year that advocates have been, some are excited about, has been like their proposal on their the Title IX rule change that would find categorical bans against trans students joining sports teams that match their gender identity. Uh, the, the rule change would find that those bans uh, violate federal civil rights law, although the current proposed version would still allow some restrictions for competitive high school and college sports. So there is some action on the national level, but Like you just mentioned with uh, advocate response, the situation that transgender people are facing right now is dire. More families are moving out of states like Florida. And Florida actually is a state where LGBTQ advocacy groups have issued a travel advisory for saying like queer people are not safe if they go to this state. Mm -hmm. Trans people, trans adults, they're worried about losing access to healthcare right now. They've been telling me that since last fall that there were like adults are worried about it. We haven't seen Democrats act on that. And LGBTQ advocates and trans people want the Biden administration to actually provide leadership on this and to respond to how bad it actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that would be my overview. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's at least to being consistent, right? Because <laughs> I think that there's often, I mean, lip service is probably too pejorative a phrase, but the response being measured went up against potentially cataclysmic crisis that we're facing. As you mentioned, the state legislators who are actually taking up the fight, are you seeing anything else? uh, Or I guess maybe like what's giving you hope in terms of folks fighting back outside of halls of Congress or in state legislatures? The queer and trans advocates who go to state houses and a lot of them will push to have conversations with Republican lawmakers that state advocacy groups will help set up those conversations. Like in Texas, that's been one of their strategies for a while for the past few years. And so those advocates are the ones who are, you know, when their state ledges in session are kind of day in, day out at the Capitol in these states, they're protesting, they're trying to talk to lawmakers, they're testifying Some of them will go to these state houses and spend all day there, will miss work, will drive hours to go be there. And those, to me, are the people who are more at the front lines of this that I always appreciate talking with. And just the ones who are doing a lot of work that can also put them in danger. Because we just saw in Texas, you know, an advocate 
that I'm lucky to talk to. Audrey Perez was detained during protests against gender-affirming care ban. So that, to me, that's an example of the environment that these people are doing this work in when they're going into state houses where they might be detained or arrested for what they're doing. Thanks for that. And as you're doing this reporting, in an interview with NPR, you and other trans reporters, you mentioned Kate Sasson, who works with you at 19th, Amara Jones of Trans Last Media. Um, you all talked about the importance of having trans reporters covering trans issues. How has it been for you lifting up these stories from your community while also having to live as a trans person in this country experiencing this viciousness? In a practical sense, being trans gives like helps my reporting just because it helps my trust with sources. I've gotten some interviews literally only because I'm a trans man mm-hmm. um, or, or just because I'm a trans person, especially with other regular people is a bad way to put it. But just like people with no like just average person sometimes will like only talk to me because I'm trans because they don't have to explain partially because they don't have to explain basic things to me that they might have to explain to another reporter. So practically, it's very helpful. And I think more newsrooms should embrace that when they're thinking about hiring trans reporters, because this kind of coverage is getting national attention and it's getting a lot of great coverage. I think it'd be better coverage with more trans reporters. I mean, it's also difficult to do this reporting when it's on your own community. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been difficult emotionally for me to ha- talk about some of the rhetoric surrounding trans people, especially mm-hmm. trans masculine people. But I have a good therapist and a good editor. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, on the, in my uh, acknowledgments of my book. I referenced my therapist and I was like, everybody should have a therapist. And that even just in terms of being a person in this realm, one of the things I've recently reconnected with in my personal journey is, so my uncle was one of the first black reporters to cover the White House back in the 1950s. Oh, wow. Uh, but he talked to me about he would go sit down at the lunch table for the Washington Star and people and the white reporters all get up and walk away. Huh. And it was so intense for him that he wound up leaving and going to create his own black paper, um, Niagara Falls Patriot. And so that journey, you know, is, is very intense when you're in from a community that's under attack and also trying to be a reporter and then also fascinating to me and maddening and probably many of you experienced this as well is that people would try to say that like reporters of color aren't objective when reporting on racism when i was always like well if racism affects everybody then how could the white reporter necessarily be objective if they're actually reporting at them so i don't know if you've had any mm-hmm. kind of that dynamic in your experience i've been lucky at the newsrooms i'm at where i haven't faced that attitude from within the newsroom where i think it can be the most detrimental to to having a career i have been told that from certain groups proponents of this rhetoric that i've approached or that have approached me and tried to insinuate that because i am transgender that i am not actually a journalist or that I'm coming with a certain viewpoint, which obviously everyone has a viewpoint because everyone has an identity. Yeah. So I do think it's an interesting conversation of like, when you mentioned being objective, like I'm reporting on these issues as a trans person. So like the viewpoint I'm bringing is not the same as somebody else, but I also question the idea of like the totally removed, like totally objective person. Like, well, I think if you're reporting on 
something and you're absolutely not able to relate to it in any way, it's not going to be as powerful a story as if you do relate to it. Right. Um, so that yeah. that's one of my main thoughts about it. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all the time that we have. But we honestly, first of all, I would just, you know, we're really glad you are there and are doing this and are shining a light on all these issues. And so I just want to thank you for your your work professionally. And then also really thank you for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been amazing to have this conversation with you and with uh, Fola. Thank you. All right. So that's all the time we have today. As Fola uh, mentioned earlier, it's the first episode in Pride Month. And I really appreciate, I found the conversation very illuminating. I'm glad that Orion um, could join us and that he's really doing that work. And I want to thank all of you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow Orion on Twitter at I, the letter I, underscore Orion. That's two I's. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter, democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support by Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.